Okay, welcome back to RUF. Really glad you're here. Um, thank you for being flexible uh, tonight. I know it's kind of an odd start time at 6 o'clock, uh, and there's lots going on at 6 o'clock on a, on a Wednesday night. So thank you for coming and uh, making this a priority. I'm thankful for that. Uh, also, I've got some special guests here tonight. Many of you probably saw uh, them walk in, but you hear me talk about my girls a lot and my wife. So they are here because it is a 6 o'clock start time. They're able to actually come because um, it's not so late that they're not worn out for school the next day. So if my girls and Susie would stand up, this is my family. So, um, <laughs> so uh, seriously, one of the joys of campus ministry is they get to be around you. Um, college students that are trying to figure out um, what it means to love God and love people. And so it's a real um, benefit for us for them to be able to come and hang out with you. So, uh, Also, if you're here tonight and maybe this is your first time to RUF, I want to particularly welcome you and let you know that I'm really glad that you're here. Um, there's way more to my job than Wednesday nights. I want to get to know you, Caroline, our intern, and Graham. Uh, the guy intern uh, would love to get to know you as well. And so uh, please come introduce yourself. Let's go to lunch. Let's get coffee. I'd love to hear your story um, and hear about your life. So uh, thanks for coming. One of the things about RUF is we study books of the Bible. And so we normally alternate between Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, this semester we're in the Old Testament. We're studying the book of Judges. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 2 tonight. If you have an outline, you'll see the text printed for you there as well. Or you can turn in your phone as well. Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. This is God's Word. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the, the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sowed them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Whoa, wait just a second. <laughs> okay, we can't overlook that. That's pretty strong. The hand of the Lord, he sent them out, was against them for harm. Whoa. Okay, I'm going to deal with that, so I'm not going to brush over that uh, completely, but we're not going to deal with it tonight, but come back next week and we will talk about that because that's a big thing that we see over and over in the book of Judges. Okay, so I just want you to know that I'm not totally ignoring that. Okay, when they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Now, I didn't put this in your uh, handout in the text, but look at verse 18. 
The end of verse 18, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. Verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would come through your Holy Spirit and meet us tonight. Um, We thank you, as the hymn says, that we are able to come into your house of wines, as the hymn said, only because of your merit. And so it's on your merit that we stand tonight. Father, this is not about us. This is about you. We thank you um, for what you've done for us through Jesus. And we pray, uh, Lord, we're, some of us, discouraged and frustrated and angry. um, And we need to hear from you. We need a word, something that we can lock onto that would give us hope and courage um, this week. And so would you come and do that through this passage in some way, challenge us even, But I pray that we would leave here with our eyes on our wonderful Savior, Jesus, and not on ourselves. We would be thankful if you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Not sure if you're aware, but yesterday actually marked the 70th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz uh, concentration camps. I don't know if you were uh, familiar with that or saw that on social media. But it reminded me of an interview that I actually uh, was reminded of. It's several years old, way before you were probably even born. 1983, there was an interview on 60 Minutes by Mike Wallace, and he was interviewing uh, Yahil Denur. Denur was actually a, a Holocaust survivor and went on to be a very famous writer. And during the interview with Mike Wallace, Denur is recounting the trial of Adolf Eichmann. I don't know if you know who that is, but he was one of the primary organizers of the Holocaust in the Nazi army. And during the interview, Mike Wallace actually plays a video clip of Denur walking into the trial, into the courtroom, and as he's walking into the courtroom, he makes eye contact with Adolf Eichmann. And when he makes eye contact with Eichmann, Denur completely freezes and begins to weep uncontrollably. So much so that he eventually just passes out right there in the courtroom. And Wallace asked him and said, why did you collapse? Was it because you saw him and made eye contact and fear just overtook you in that moment? Or did you collapse because of the utter hatred that you had for this man? And Denur replied and said, it was actually none of those things. Actually, the reason why I collapsed is because when I walked into the courtroom and I met him eye to eye, I realized that Eichmann was not a godlike figure that I had made him out to be. But he was actually just an ordinary man like me. And I began to sob uncontrollably because I was afraid of myself, he said, 
And I saw in him that I was capable of doing the exact same thing. And then he made this comment to sum up his feelings. He said, Adolf Eichmann is in all of us. Now listen, what a way to begin the sermon, right? But my question, I know that's heavy, but here's my question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because that's what the Bible teaches about the human heart. And one of the purposes of the book of Judges is to put the human heart on display and show what it's capable of. The book of Judges is almost like smelling salts. You know smelling salts when uh, a linebacker puts a lick on a running back or a tight end or a receiver gets just totally knocked out. The trainers come out and they put smelling salts to kind of bring them back to reality. And to jolt them, that's what the book of Judges does. It jolts us, it acts as smelling salts in a sense because it comes and it shows us the right self-knowledge that we are to have of our own heart. But if you're honest tonight, haven't you begun to see that that is actually true? I mean, haven't you already maybe been surprised at some of the things that you've done in college? I mean, think about it. A a few years ago, when you were 12, 13, 14 years old, you would say, no way! I'm never going to do that. You see, Judges comes and says that you're naive and deceived if you go through college and don't grow in awareness of the sin that resides inside your own heart. Judges chapter 2 comes and it shows us a picture of people who turn their back on God and go their own way and live for themselves. It shows us that when they do that, they begin to spiral out of control into sin and into idolatry. So we're going to look at this very sobering passage tonight. And we're going to see and let it diagnose for us the cycles of sin that we see in the book of Judges. Because you've got to deal with that. Because if you've ever read the book of Judges, you'll know it's like a broken record. Over and over again, what happens? They do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. God sends oppressors to oppress them. They cry out for help and say, God, help us. God sends a judge or a deliverer to come and deliver them out from underneath sin and slavery. We see that over and over. And so tonight, chapter 2 takes us in and focuses us on the cycle and dissects it for us and shows us that it really consists of three things in, in summary. One, idolatry. We see slavery. And we also see freedom. Let's look at number one, idolatry. So how does it begin? How does over and over do they begin to fall into this cycle of sin in the book of Judges? Look at verses 11 through 13. You'll see this a lot. Again, the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Note that phrase. When we hear the word evil, I don't know if you're like me, but 
it seems like in our culture, evil seems really strong, and we automatically like think serial killer, a murderous rampage, something like that. But notice what God is calling evil. He is calling evil, look at verse 11. He's saying that our idolatry, that is evil. He's saying that it's evil when we actually find other things in our life more important than God. What did they find more important than God, the Israelites, God's people? Well, two things. It says specifically Baal and Ashtoreth. Who are they? Well, Baal, let's look at him. He's the local Canaanite god of weather. Back then it was an agriculture society, and so they were dependent upon good weather because good weather meant what? Crops. Crops meant money. Money meant food. Ashtoreth, she was the fertility goddess. And so she was the one that controlled whether or not you were able to have children. And children in that time period were very, very important. Why? Because they were to take care of you when you got older. They were social security for you in a sense. But here's what I want us to see. They served God. And they also served Baal and Ashtoreth. And by moving towards Baal and Astra, these other gods, these idols, they were actually tipping, the Israelites were tipping their hats and their hand to what they really thought was important. By moving towards Baal and Asherah, they were actually showing what was really important to them and what they were really after in life. Sex, security, comfort, and money. You see, what this passage shows us is that it's possible for human beings to worship many gods. Idolatry is worshiping Jesus plus something else. It looks like having one foot in the world in doing what you want to do and having one foot in Christianity. That's idolatry. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you're saying, Jason, I don't worship any God because I'm not religious. Friends, you see, everyone has a God. Everyone is a worshiper. Every single person in the world is actually living for something. Whatever it is right now that has got your heart and that you are looking to to find life and security and significance and to suck like life out of and make you feel alive, whatever that is for you right now, that is your God. That is what you are worshiping. It might be power, it might be academics, it might be sex, it might be a career, it might be pleasure, it might be your family, it might be a relationship. But don't be so naive to think that just because you don't go to church doesn't mean that you're not worshiping. Because everyone is a worshiper. It's just a matter if they're worshiping God or something else. But what does this say to the Christian? Well, I think it's deeply challenging. and It has been for me as I've thought about this passage this week. But it tells us that it is possible for you to say... I love Jesus. I'm following Jesus. 
and yet actually be living for something else. It tells us that it's possible to actually be saying, I love Jesus, I'm following Him, but actually be using Him to get what it is that you really want. You see, this passage is important because it helps us to understand our heart. And you'll never understand your heart and why it is that you do the things you do unless you understand the biblical notion of idolatry. So what do you do? Here's a start. You've got to start by being honest with yourself. You've got to start with being honest by what's going on deep down inside of you in every single area of your life. So think about your life. Think about your heart in all the areas of your life. Think about your sexuality, your computer, the way you relate to alcohol, your dating relationships, your ambitions, your possessions, your family, your career, money, whatever it is. Think about those things and ask two questions. The first question is this, am I willing to do whatever God says in that particular area in my life? Am I willing to do whatever God says in that particular area of my life? Secondly, am I willing to accept whatever God sends to me in that particular area of my life? See, if the answer is no to either of those questions then the Bible says you've got a divided heart. It says that you're actually worshiping Jesus plus something else. And to put it in the context of the judges, if you answer no to either of those questions, then the cycle has started in your life. The cycle of sin that we see in judges, the spiral has already begun. And so the question is this, in what ways in your life tonight do you have one foot with Jesus and one foot in the world in which you're living however you want and doing whatever you want when you please? Secondly, we see where idolatry actually leads us in the cycle and where does it lead us? Well, Look at verses 14 and 15. It shows us that the next step in the cycle is what? It goes from idolatry to slavery. God allows His people to be plundered by their enemies and to be taken as slaves to a foreign nation. And so what that shows us, the Bible lays down a principle for us, and the principle is this. When you worship anything other than the God of the Bible, it will lead you to slavery. It will crush you. And because of the way I said that in such strong language, our initial gut level reaction is to always think of idols as being really bad things. But friends, idols are almost never bad things, but always good things. Good gifts that God has given us that we have taken and twisted and perverted and actually made ultimate things. Think of it this way. Work. Work is actually a good gift that God has given us. 
The workaholic father never starts his career and says, yes, I'm going to be a workaholic. I'm going to sacrifice my life on this idol of work and it's going to enslave me. That's what I'm going to do. No. He starts with very good intentions, right? He starts working to be a good employee. He starts working in order to make money, in order to save for his children in college. And then all of a sudden, uh, there's something that happens and he starts realizing that this is really significant for me. This is where I'm getting my worth and value and love and respect. And then that takes him down the road to, this company needs me. I've got to be here. And so I've got to work longer hours because if I'm not here, things don't happen. And then you know what happens next. He starts missing your soccer games. Missing the school plays. And then you can't remember the last time that you actually had a family meal together. Because you see, he's actually sacrificing the family on the idol altar. He's actually become enslaved in his idol and making work an ultimate thing instead of keeping it in its proper place is actually running him into the ground. You see that? So why do we do that? Why as human beings do we take these good gifts that God has given us and totally make them ultimate things. Here's a why. I'll give you a quick explanation. It's because you were built covenantally. As a human being, you were built to worship and to be dependent upon something. And the Bible says that something is God. You were created with a God-shaped vacuum in your heart. And life only makes sense to you when you have a relationship with Him. That's the way life works best. And so ever since your birth, all of us, me included, have been searching desperately for something to plug ourselves into to give us significance, love, and acceptance, and truth. And the Bible says that thing that's going to give us those things is God. But because you're built covenantally, that also means that you actually enter into a relationship with your idols covenantally. In other words, you enter into idolatry, you always do it covenantally. It's subtle, it's profound, it's hidden, but the Bible says that you and I actually make covenants with our idols in a way that they start to have power and control over us and actually start to enslave us. That's a brief explanation of why we do that. Because it's something in the way we're wired. And it's why some of you have worshipped sex. And now you're a slave to pornography. You can't stop. It's controlling you. It's consuming you. And it feels like you're in chains. And you want so desperately more than anything. How many times have you promised, I'm going to stop? And guess what? You haven't been able to. Why? Because you're a slave. And maybe it's not sex for you. Maybe it's actually you're bowing down to the God of approval. And you have spent your life 
trying to work life so that people approve of you and like you. And here's my question, and this is me, okay, this is mine. But have you ever stopped to think of how much that idol is actually controlling you? It controls what you wear. It controls how you think about your body. It controls what you eat. It controls how much you work out. It controls what you do for fun. It controls how you act around other people. It controls how you talk. You can't handle criticism. And it makes you angry and gets you defensive and makes you point the finger. And you can't confront your friends that are going down a terrible road and need someone to help them. Why? Because you're a slave. You're not free. And Jesus has come into the world to set you free. Or maybe for you it's alcohol. Are you able to go out with a group of friends and not have a drink? If not, have you ever thought that maybe you're a slave? You see, it's way deeper than the slavery that I've mentioned because what that does is it drives us deep to show us that we're actually loving and worshiping something else besides God. And whatever it is in your life that you're loving and worshiping besides God, it owns you. It's controlling you. It has enslaved you. And here's the great thing about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible and of Christianity comes and says, come to me. I don't demand your life. I won't run you into the ground. I will forgive you. And I will love you. And I will give you the significance that you've longed for. And you know how He does it? Not by taking your life, but by giving His. That's how... The God of the Bible is different than the idols that you and I serve. And that leads to the last point. What do we need? We desperately need help. There went my notes. That I gotta have. <laughs> we, we desperately need help. Look at verse 16. So what happens is that the Israelites... They're enslaved, and in the midst of their slavery, they start to realize, wait a minute, life is not going well for us. And so they start to cry out for God, and they actually repent. And then God sends, it says He hears their cry of distress, and He sends them a judge. Let's stop there for a second. We're going to hear that word over and over. When we think of judges, you and I think courtroom, think black robe, we think legal system, not the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, the word judge means military leader. And so when you hear the word in the book of Judges, think Jack Bauer, not Judge Judy. And so God sends these judges, these military leaders, to rescue His people and to break them out of slavery. And when He does, they start to flourish and they start to live life to the fullest and do exactly what they were created to do. Love and serve God and serve the people around them. And then what happens? They go back to idolatry. And then God sends oppressors. 
They cry out, and then God sends a judge to come and deliver them over and over. And so you see what that teaches us, don't you? That teaches us that the purpose of the entire book of Judges, here it is. You want to know the purpose of the book of Judges? It's to point us to our need for a greater judge. It's to point us to our need for a greater deliverer who would come and break God's people out of their slavery to sin and idolatry once and for all, not temporarily, but once and for all. And here's what's amazing. And please hang with me because this totally blew me away and I want to share it with you. If you have your Bible, look back at Judges chapter 1 or your phone. Verse 1. The entire book of Judges opens with a question. And the question is this. Who will go up and fight for us and defeat the Canaanites and drive out the wickedness? And every single time in the book of Judges, the answer is this. Judah. The tribe of Judah will go up and fight and drive out the wickedness that is tearing apart the world. And here's what blew me away. If you're holding an English Bible right now, I don't know if anyone in here knows Hebrew or has a Hebrew Bible, but if you're holding an English Bible, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. But if you were in the first century and you were holding an original Hebrew Bible, you know what the last book of the Old Testament would be, it has all the same books in it, they're just in a different order, but the last book of the Hebrew Bible is a book called Second Chronicles. And you know how that book ends? It ends with a question. You can look it up. The very last verse, who will go up? You see, King Cyrus is saying, God, we're, Israel is still such a mess and we need someone to come and deliver us. The Old Testament ends that way. And you know the answer? Look it up in 2 Chronicles. It's Judah. And then we go to the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew, and we see the... uh, What am I trying to say? Genealogy, yes. I was thinking geology for some reason. I couldn't get it in my mind. Genealogy, and we see that... And we automatically think, like, oh, this is boring, I'm going to skip over it. But you know what the genealogy says to us? It says that there's someone coming through the tribe of Judah. And you know who his name is? Jesus. You see it? Jesus is the one coming through the line of Judah. He's the true judge. He's the true warrior. He's the true king that will come into the world and take wickedness head on and defeat the evil and sin and break the people out of their slavery once and for all. Many of you have probably seen the movie Selma. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm sure you're at least familiar with the story from your U.S. history classes. But it's a story of Martin Luther King's struggle to secure voting rights for all people. And there were three Selma marches, and they were basically wanting to march 
from Selma to Montgomery to the capital, 54 miles. And the first march actually took place on March 7, 1965. The march is actually videoed and was televised. You should go look at it on, on the internet. Very sobering. And it, on that day, it was actually became known as Bloody Sunday. And the reason it became known as Bloody Sunday was because 600 civil rights activists and leaders attempted to take the march to Montgomery, Alabama, and they were going over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And here's what I want you to see. The bridge is lined with state troopers. And the activists know exactly what's going to happen. They willingly walked head-on into police evil, and they are brutally beaten and tear-gassed. But it was that sacrifice that actually exposed the evil. Because you know what happened? It was televised, and that went throughout the nation, and there was a national uproar because of what was going on and the injustice that was being done, so much so that the President of the United States actually provided security and protection for them two weeks later on a march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, and they're standing at the Capitol in Montgomery, and now at this time there are 25,000 people standing there. You see, the sacrifice not only exposed the evil, but it also won the freedom for other people. That's what Jesus has done. You see, Jesus is the true judge that goes up for us. And He doesn't fight with military might like the judges we see in the book of Judges, but He actually fights by sacrificing His life like the civil rights leaders, he goes head on into evil. Friends, even more evil that was done on that particular day in Selma, Alabama. Because as Jesus is hanging on the cross, all the evil of the entire world is poured out on him on that moment. And it was so evil that it actually killed him. But, his sacrifice not only did it expose And not only did he go head on into evil for us, but at the very same time, that sacrifice won freedom for me and you. You see, Jesus says everything in your life right now that is threatening to take you down, Jesus says, I stood in the line of fire. I took the tear gas so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus says, I lived a perfect life And because I love you, I stood in your place on the cross and took the penalty that you deserved. And to the degree that you get that, to the degree that that melts your heart, is to the degree that you will start moving out of your cycle of idolatry and slavery that you find yourself in tonight. Let's pray. Father, 